If you want to take your Bibles and turn, we're going to be back in Mark. Mark chapter 6. We'll be trucking on through here. Weakness is a big business. In the year of our Lord 2023, we live in a time when society casts almost everything in terms of power and power struggles. And so showing off your weakness is much to your advantage because power is evil. Power is bad. And so if you're weak, you're good. Oh, of course, we don't use the language of weakness. We use the language of oppression and struggle and disadvantage. And if you can show that you sit at the intersection of multiple oppressed groups, then you're automatically supposed to have an outside, outsized voice and the right to ignore everything that comes from those who have cultural power, which being translated into simple English means you can basically ignore everything that a straight white man has to say. So you can just shut off your ears now because <laughs> here I stand. <laughs> In our day, displaying your weaknesses is its own kind of power play. And many folks, even Christians, then have reacted against this hard in a manifestly unhealthy way, willing to embrace an unhealthy, any unhealthy form of power. We, we have to prove we're not weak by embracing any sort of vulgarity, abuse, or crass self-interest. We will tolerate and even celebrate these things because, well, it's not like the craziness in the culture. And this also is an error. As Christians, those who hold the Bible, God's word, as our highest authority, we need to realize that there is a type of weakness which is inherent to our nature, which we must not only learn to be okay with, but actually embrace if we are to honor God. And that's our creaturely weakness. We are we are creatures, not the creator. We have limits. In comparison to God, we are very weak. We have limitations, limits, and frailties when it comes to how many hours are in a day, how much energy we are given within those hours. We have to sleep every day. We're limited in how much we're able to learn and know. We're limited by having to stop and do things like eat. Embarrassing things like go to the bathroom. How much time of our lives is spent doing these things that seem very limiting and weak. And our bodies, this side of the fall, face the ultimate limit, the authoritative limit, death. So our bodies are not only limited by being creaturely, but because of the fall, because of sin, they're decaying, they're breaking down, they're headed for the grave. And we can ignore that fact, or we can run from it, or we can embrace the fact that this is reality, this side of Eden. Limits and weaknesses are part of what it means to be human. But not all weaknesses are the result of our simple humanity or even just the presence of sin in the world. Some of our weaknesses expose sins for which we are responsible. And that's what we're going to find in our text this morning. A weak man who believes that he is great and in doing so coddles his weakness. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, we'll read all the way through verse 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 14 opens when King Herod heard of it, when he heard of what? When he heard of what we were talking about last week, the ministry of Jesus throughout all of Galilee. He administered some in Nazareth, but then when he was rejected there, he and his disciples went out into the surrounding villages and towns, and they're doing miraculous things. They're casting out demons. They're teaching authoritatively the gospel. Jesus did not just these, again, not just these mighty works by his own hands, but through his disciples, and and the fame of this is going out. The rest of verse 14 tells us that Jesus's name had become known, and that's pretty understandable. You're in a small town and miraculous things starts to happen. That's the sort of thing where the word gets around. And so theories start to rage over who could this be? Is this Elijah? Or maybe it's one of the other prophets of old. Or maybe he's just a, he's a new prophet, but he's like the prophets of old. Well, we know someone who was kind of like that recently, John. But yeah, he's dead. He had his head taken off out. He's back from the dead. And Mark tells us that one of the people who believe this John is back from the dead theory is King Herod, who is the Tetrarch or the puppet king, the Roman puppet king of this region of Galilee. Then Mark does something interesting in that he cuts away from the story of Jesus to backfill, right? This, This execution of John had actually taken place quite a bit earlier, but John hasn't told us anything about John the Baptist, or Mark hasn't told us anything about John the Baptist since the first part of Mark chapter one. The last time we saw John the Baptist in this gospel, he's baptizing Jesus in the river Jordan, and then he disappears from the story. And so now as we hear about Herod, hears of Jesus, and Herod thinks John the Baptist is back from the dead, Mark decides to tell us how did John end up dead. That's not a great story. John doesn't go out in some kind of blaze of glory, right? He's not riding chariots of fire like Elijah up into the sky. He's not even like getting his blood spilled on the altar like Zechariah does in Second Chronicles. Instead, he's in jail. 
and not in jail because he's doing, you know, he's, it's not like Stephen where he's preaching the gospel and then the people stone him to death. No, he's, he's in jail because he called out the public sin of a public official. <clears throat> this is like if in the 90s when the, the Lewinsky stuff was happening, all the pastors who said something about it got thrown in jail. <laughs> this is kind of like, this is what's happening here. The, the Herod in our story is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod who has the census taken when Jesus is born and then has all the babies killed because he's upset about the, the threat to his own rule, right? So that's the, maybe the first Herod we think of in Scripture is Herod the Great. He's the one who initiates this great expansive addition to the second temple. <clears throat> he, when he died, he, his kingdom was split between three of his sons. The one in our story is Herod Antipas. Herod Archelaus, Antipas's older brother, was an awful ruler. He was kicked out <laughs> fairly early on in his reign, and is he had died by this time. But then there's another brother, Herod Philip I. He's a half-brother to these two, who had been married to this woman named Herodias. But then they divorced, and Herod Antipas takes Philip's ex-wife, Herodias, as his own wife. And to our own modern ears, this is kind of like, it's a little weird, but sounds a little European, not that big of a deal. <clears throat> but flip ahead to Mark chapter 10, and we'll see what Jesus thinks about this. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 2, the Pharisees came up to him, to Jesus, in order to test him and asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother, father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again. So the Pharisees had asked that question, and the disciples are like, man, we got to follow up on this. They asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that seems to be just exactly what has happened here. So the, the biblical baseline, Jesus' baseline, is that dis, divorce dishonors God. There are times, due to one spouse's sin or both spouses' sin, when marriages dissolve, they end. Jesus tells them in Mark chapter 10 that because of the Israelites' hardness of heart, God makes a provision for this, that this happens. But that's not an excuse to pretend that the marriage didn't ever happen and then to run into the arms of the next person you see. Jesus says to initiate a divorce and then to marry someone else is a form of adultery. Jesus' teaching wasn't new. He's simply elaborating on the creation purpose of marriage. And, and then Herod has added to his sin here by marrying his brother's wife, which uh, Leviticus 18 is this whole list where God basically says to the people of Israel, don't marry your sister, your mother, your aunt, or any other near relative like your brother's wife because it's an abomination, gross, and yuck. That's a paraphrase. But here, John takes that 
and he applies it directly to Herod. He calls Herod out on the carpet. But it's interesting. Herod is not the one who gets mad. I mean, after it tells us that John calls Herod out, it still tells us Herod is perplexed by John, but he likes to hear him. He likes to listen to him. It's his wife, his now wife, Herodias. She's the one who gets mad. She has a grudge against John and wants him dead, verse 19 tells us. Herod locks John up, but he won't kill him. Herodias wants him dead. And I don't think we have to psychologize the text too much to assume that she probably also had a grudge against her husband, who won't do anything about this crazy guy from the wilderness who places her in the same category as the prostitutes on the corner. He won't stand up for her honor. What kind of a man is he? Surely a woman of such beauty and intelligence as she deserves better than a man like this. She is a woman who knows how to strike when the moment is hot. Verse 20 tells us, verse 21 rather, tells us that such a moment came when Herod was throwing himself a birthday party. And this banquet is a big deal. Nobles come. Military commanders, verse 21, the leading men of Galilee. The wine would have been flowing freely. The food brought out in abundance. And then comes the entertainment. A young woman who the Gospel of Matthew tells us her name is Salome. And here's where we see the first of Herod's weaknesses in this text. The first one that we're going to look at at least. It's what 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 calls the lusts of the flesh. Verse 22 says that Herodias' daughter came out to dance, and it pleased Herod and his guests. And this was not like a tap dance that got a polite form of applause. Rather, what, what happens here is that this young teenage girl, probably most scholars put her at 12 to 14 years old when this happens, Salome was sent by her mother to perform a suggestive dance that manipulated the girl's stepfather into making an extravagant oath. If that does not strike you as disturbing and disgusting, I'm not entirely sure what will. But that's exactly the picture that we have here in this text. And the plot of Herodias only works because of Herod's weakness, his weakness in the area of sexual desire. He gives himself over to whatever is immediately pleasing to him, even if that happens to be this young girl born of his wife. Amen, you... You aren't a first century puppet king, but the same temptations face you today. The lies of adultery and fornication and pornography are that you are in control, that, that you're finding a way to express your power and your, to gratify your desires. And this is what the world sells as freedom, as greatness, the ability to do this whenever you want. Our world's been selling that lie for thousands of years. King Solomon himself was conquered by the lusts of his flesh. But where sin promises power, it steals instead. Where sin promises control, it produces chaos, both internal and relationally. Sexual sin will ruin you. But like Herod, many men stand weak and helpless in the face of temptation, ready to give away half their kingdom to a scantily clad girl. The second weakness we see here in Herod is the fear of man. After telling Salome that he would give her whatever she desired, verse 22, he reinforces that with a vow in verse 23, saying that it could be up to half of his kingdom. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. 
And this promise reminds us of what Xerxes says to Esther two different times in, in the book of Esther. But whereas Esther uses her influence over the king to save her people, Salome has no idea what to do, right? She, she's this young girl being offered this extravagant thing. And so she runs to her mom and says, what, what should I even ask for? And here's where we see Herodias's self-interest. Because rather than doing something that would advance her daughter's standing or provide her security for her future, she instead uses her daughter to get revenge. The girl says, for what should I ask? And her mother replies, the head of John the Baptist. That puts Herod in a tough spot, right? Verse 20 tells us that Herod knows John to be righteous and holy. And while he does not understand these righteous and holy commitments, he was glad to listen to him speak. He sought to keep him safe, even if safe meant locked up in the jail where Herodias couldn't send somebody out to kill him. Herod wants to keep John alive, but now Herod's in a pickle. He's made a public vow, and, and the response that he receives to this vow is he's supposed to give up the head of this prophet whom he knows to be holy and righteous. What should he do? We see at the end of verse 26 how he makes his decision. Because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And he's rationalizing to himself here, right? Um, God hates a lie. You don't want to be the guy that makes a promise and doesn't come through on it. But he knows killing John would be wrong. And he genuinely takes no pleasure in it. That phrase, exceedingly sorry, he, he feels exceedingly sorry about it. He's, he's, he's torn up about it. It's the same phrase that's used as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew's Gospel, where he says, my soul is extremely sorrowful even unto death. Like, that's, that's how Herod feels. He's got a deep conflict in himself. But being torn up by a hard decision is not a virtue in itself. So Andy's reading to us right now through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and we're in Prince Caspian. And last night, we were at the portion where the children and Trumpkin are lost in the forest. Okay, And if you don't know the whole story, I think... These details are enough to kind of get where we're talking about. They're lost in the forest, and they need to get to meet with Prince Caspian and his army. And they decide they know they don't know exactly where they are, but if they go this way, they can get down to where they know where they'll be. They get down to the Great River. They'll be okay. So if we head down this way. But then Lucy, the youngest, sees Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure in the books, across the gorge, telling her to go the other direction. And so she tells this to everybody else, but they didn't see it. And and so they have a choice. Do we go where it seems like maybe, possibly, Aslan is telling us to go? Or do we go the way we think we know is right? And Peter, who is the high king, and so he has to make the decision, he's torn up about it. But he still chooses the wrong thing. <laughs> Being torn up about the decision doesn't actually do him any good, he makes the wrong decision. He doesn't follow Aslan. He goes the way that makes sense to his his human mind and costs them time and effort only to have to go back and go do it the right way later on. But Herod is in a position where he can't back up and go back later on. Once John's head is off, it's off, right? He, he can't reverse an execution. Uh, 
He agonizes. And then, because he fears what his company will think, he has John beheaded. Herod is driven to this decision by the fear of man. His his lust put him in this position, but the fear of man is what's pushing him to follow through on this wicked action. Are you driven by the fear of man? Do you ignore thinking about what's right and instead think, oh, what will my folks think? What What will my spouse think? What will my kids think? What will my coworkers think? What will my friends think? It's not wrong to wonder what they will think or to even take those things into consideration. But if those things are in tension with what is the right thing to do, the question becomes, will you fear man or will you fear God? And again, this is something to choose the wrong way sells itself to us as strength because you're in control of I can appease their emotions. I can control the situation if I can make a decision that will control their reactions. Herod could sleep easy at night knowing that he was a man of his word, even when it was a hard situation. People will respect me, he might say to himself. But is following through on a drunken promise to murder a prophet really an indication of strength? Is it better to have man's approval or God's? The final weakness we see of Herod is actually at the very beginning. And said he has a guilty conscience. He's seeing ghosts. He, he doesn't see Jesus for who he is because he assumes in verse 16 that John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He thinks John is back from the dead to haunt him. Do you have sins in your past that haunt you? Is your conscience driving you mad? Are you burdened with a guilty conscience? When when you are, you blow all sorts of statements out of proportion. You blow situations out of proportion and take them out of context, the things that people say. You're not able to rationally analyze decisions and relationships in a clear and rational way. And then if you go like, I just can't deal with all of this guilt and try to deaden it either by just consciously ignoring things until you have deadened your conscience or using a substance to deaden your conscience, you're weakened even further because now you don't know that you need to be saved from that guilt. Guilt is a weakness we all know that if left undealt with will ultimately destroy us eternally. We do all have genuine guilt. So where can a guilty conscience go to be made clean? The contrast in this text is between Herod, spineless Herod, and John. Though John is totally off screen, we don't directly see John the Baptist in this text. What is relayed to us of him is important. How did John speak to Herod? He spoke to him bluntly and forthrightly. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's life, wife rather. Here is John the Baptist, this man who is clothed in camel's skin and eats this weird diet of honey and grasshoppers. And he stands before the king and says, you're in sin. He's blunt. He's clear. He's not afraid of what will happen to him. He calls Herod to repent, 
just like he had called the people in the wilderness to repent when he was baptizing by the Jordan River. And here's the thing. Herod hears him gladly. I think when I when I read that story, it made me think of a story about Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of the United States, alive during the 18th century, not a believer, right? You know, he was, he was a deist, but he loved to hear the the preacher George Whitfield speak. George Whitfield was this very clear gospel evangelist who traveled Britain and the United States and and was a, a magnificent preacher by all accounts. And Franklin loved to hear him. And someone asked Franklin about this at one point. You don't believe what Whitfield is saying. Why do you want to hear him speak? And Franklin says, no, but he does. <laughs> he believes what he's saying. And so it was interesting to Franklin, it was compelling to listen to him. Herod, likewise, didn't receive the truth of what John was saying personally, but he was willing to listen. And I think that's important for us to hear in our day because so many want to tell us to soften our message or to be gentle or to dance around sin so that we don't offend people. But I think what's history and scripture both point out is that people are a lot more offended if you don't treat them like adults. <laughs> if you're willing to lie to them or soft-pedal them, if you just tell them the truth, if you're honest with people, that earns more respect than trying to treat them like a child who might throw a temper tantrum when you say something to them. <clears throat> the example of John says, tell the truth. John, unlike Herod, had a backbone. To proclaim the Christian gospel takes a backbone. My job and your job is to tell people of their sin. And at times, that's even going to mean, like John does here, naming specific sins. Because unless and until we recognize our specific sins, we have no idea of why we need a Savior. Jesus did not die for some vague general category called sins. He died for specific sins. He died for your pornography use. He died for you yelling at your kids. He died for your drug use. He died for you fudging on your taxes. He died for your gossip. He died for you kids disobeying your parents. Jesus died for real sins. And if anyone is going to be saved, they must be aware of their sins from which they need to be saved. Now, the boldness to say that does not equate to self-righteousness, because the minute we start to think about specific sins, we should think about our specific sins. We confront people not as those who are perfect, but those who are fellow sinners. What sort of sexual sin are you guilty of, either with your body or your mind? Matthew 5.28 says to lust after a woman is to commit adultery in your heart. When, when have you been blown over by the winds of public opinion or what you imagined public opinion would be about a decision? And what sins of your past are eating you away right now? What, what's getting at your conscience? So long as you are living in sin, you will be weak. And again, one of the lies of this world, one of the lies of the devil and the lies of your flesh is that it tells you to constantly surrender to temptation is a sign of being strong and free, that you're able to make that choice. 
But that's nonsense. Jesus says that whoever lives in sin is a slave to sin. And Herod's life makes that abundantly clear. But you can be free from sin. Your conscience can be cleansed. You can be cleansed of the specific sins that you have committed and you are committing and you will commit. If you know the same Jesus that John knew, John was able to have a backbone because John knew God. Because John knew Jesus and knew Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you trust in Jesus' substitutionary death in your place on the cross, then you will be set free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8, 2 says. And if you've trusted in Christ, you've been given the spirit-endowed strength to say no to sin. Instead of being ruled by the desires of the flesh and the works of the flesh, Romans 8, 13 says you can put to death the deeds of the body. If Herod were trusting in Christ, when that girl came in, he could have said no to his fleshly desires and told her to go away and put some clothes on. What, if, if Herod had failed in that way and knew Christ, he could have said no to his desire to please everybody around him and said, I'm not going to murder a man. Christ gives us the ability to say no to sin. And you do that as a believer by knowing what God says, what God requires, by reading and meditating on the word of God, the sword of the spirit. That's how we slay sin is with the sword of the spirit. Ephesians 6, I think that's verse 17 says. And you do it, next verse in Ephesians 6, by constantly seeking him in prayer, praying at all times in the spirit. True strength comes from acknowledging your weakness before God and then living by faith in the strength that he supplies. So don't identify yourself by your weaknesses. That's one of the great temptations in our day. I think it's, there, there are some healthy things in the desire to be honest and open about places where you struggle. There, there generations that are older than me <laughs> this could probably do describe some people here like where where we just didn't talk about any struggles didn't talk about anything personal we didn't talk about any failings and and scripture talks about confessing our sins with one another so that we can pray for one another like there's there's a goodness in that kind of honesty but but the temptation that especially younger people face is then identifying ourselves by our weaknesses, by our sins, by those struggles. You have weaknesses and struggles. You are a sinful human being. But if you are in Christ, you are not those things. You are a spirit-filled child of the living God. And so you should live in the strength that he supplies. The danger of weakness is that it can fool us into thinking, I just am the way I am. Things just are the way they are. But if you are in Christ, that is not true. The Spirit has the power to turn you from your sin and to give you growth in grace. What defines us most deeply is not our weakness, but God's strength. God's grace will give us spiritual backbone. Would you pray with me? (coughs) Father God, we ask that you would give us that. Help us to be so secure in the salvation that we have through Christ, that we can stand in the face of temptation, 
in the face of our flesh, in the face of the devil, and say, no, Christ died for my sins. I will not submit to them any longer. Thank you for the new resurrection life that you give us in Christ by the Spirit. Help us to walk as those who honor you with our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.